This episode is brought to you by Speroni. Revolutionize your shop floor with Speroni, where cutting-edge technology meets craftsmanship. Elevate precision, amplify productivity. Speroni. Experience, tradition, the future. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Manufacturing Culture Podcast, your go-to place for cutting-edge insights into the dynamic world of manufacturing. I'm your host, Jim Mayer. Now, I know many of you are probably buzzing with excitement as the MLB playoffs are in full swing. It's that time of year when tension mounts, heroes are made, and teams rally together to win it all. The energy is palpable and the lessons to be learned from the diamond are numerous. So I thought, what a better way to celebrate this season than by inviting a guest who understands the hustle of the playoffs and the subtleties of teamwork like the back of his hand. But before we get into that fastball of a conversation, a quick reminder, you can find all of our previous episodes, insightful blog articles, and much more at manufacturingculturepodcast.com. Don't forget to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and now even YouTube to keep up with our latest updates and engage with our ever-growing community of manufacturing enthusiasts. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Speroni, for supporting this podcast. When it comes to precision, reliability, when it comes to precision, reliability, and top-notch quality, Speroni is like that clutch hitter you want at the plate when the bases are loaded. We couldn't be happier to have them on our team. Now, let's introduce our all-star guest for today's episode. Coming to us with a batting average that's just as impressive in the boardroom as it was on the baseball field, we're thrilled to have Chris Caves join us today. Currently serving as an Associate Vice President of Business Insurance, Chris specializes in sectors ranging from manufacturing and construction to technology and auto dealers. But what's truly fascinating about Chris is how his life in baseball playing all four years in college and another four in the minor leagues has informed his unique approach to business. This man is not just a consultant. He's a coach, a mentor, and a strategist all rolled into one. With a degree in sports and fitness management, along with a minor in psychology, Chris knows what makes a team tick. He understands the mental grit needed to weather a slump, the camaraderie required to celebrate a win, and the leadership skills vital for steering a team, be it a manufacturing workforce or a baseball squad, toward success. Off the field, he's a dedicated family man and an Arizona native who loves spending time outdoors, golfing, cycling, and even working on classic cars. So whether you want to talk about reducing risks in your manufacturing operations or the torque in a 1967 Shelby GT500, Chris is your guy. So grab your ball caps and mitts, folks. This is going to be a deep dive discussion into the nitty gritty of what makes a team successful in baseball and in business. We'll explore how the strategies, the tensions, and the triumphs of America's pastime can teach us valuable lessons about teamwork and leadership in the manufacturing industry. This episode is a world series of manufacturing culture talks, and you won't want to miss a single pitch. Welcome to the show, Chris Caves. 
Thank you for being our guest what today. What an intro, man. <laughs> Thank you for that. So yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> it's, I, I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm telling every guest, this is my favorite part about the podcast, yeah. is writing the intros, taking the, I think you sent like a paragraph yeah. of bio yeah. and making it into that. That's my favorite part. I I think I missed my calling. I just need I think to be you a did. It's almost man. like a documentary on on ESPN, right? <laughs> so that was like the intro, and then you're going to get into the sixty you know minutes of the yeah. the pain of of what the players went through. Gosh, thirty for thirty. Yeah, there Jim you go. Mayer on Manufacturing Culture <laughs> Podcast. I don't know if I can say that ESPN. No, no, no. Me. So sorry. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> And this is done. Yeah, and we're sued. And we're it's shut okay. down. All right. Well, that'll be fun. Uh, good thing they have lawyers and I don't. Um, <laughs> so, Chris, uh, we're in a studio today in Mesa, Arizona. This is the first time I've done anything like this in a studio. It's wild. There's a TV. There's much better equipment <laughs> than I'm used to. I'm sitting with my guest, and it's not in a machine shop with machines running in the background or at a trade show. This is a brand new experience for me. Um, Thanks for being along on the journey. This is pretty neat. I I mean, there's lights in front of us. (laughs) I mean, this is a real deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, this is, this is the big leagues, right? This is the big leagues. Oh, I've graduated. I've yeah, gone from triple A into yeah. The, you're, this is the big leagues. Got it. This All is right. the big leagues. I like. I like that you're keeping up with the theme. There buddy. you go. I like it. There you go. So, Chris, let's talk about your history, um, your journey, uh, because not only does it envelop manufacturing, which we all want to hear about. Um, but your your journey is a lot more about leadership, teamwork, camaraderie, um, and that's where we're going to focus on today's conversation. So, talk to us about your journey. Uh, how did you get into baseball? How did you then play for so long? What kind of cool stories do you have oh from gosh. the minor leagues? I mean, you and I were at a D-backs game. I think it was last season, um, and you were telling me some stories over a beer. Uh, Soda a beverage, beverage, a beverage. Um, tell us, tell us about your story. Yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, do, do your, uh, listeners have four hours and so, <laughs> well, no, I, I, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's a, it's a great story. Um, there's a lot of sub stories within my upbringing, but getting into baseball, I was raised by, by, by wonderful parents, um, wonderful grandparents. I mean, I was very, very blessed with the upbringing that I had. We, we didn't exactly have a lot of money, um, but but we made a lot of what we had. Sure. And so, um, you know, my parents divorced when I was I was really young. I was five years old. My parents divorced, and um, you know, getting into baseball, it's uh, it's funny. I came from a, a dancing family, so really? both of my parents were were professional ballroom dance instructors, and worldly ranked, uh, un- unbelievable in their time, unbelievable dancers. And, uh, and so, you know, when they separated, my dad and mom owned a studio. My dad continued owning that studio for 26 years Wow. Um, beyond that. But really growing up at the age of two, it's like, well, what's Chris going to do? Well, let's put him in dance, yeah. right? And everybody in my family, I put it to dance. So I did a little tap and jazz and tumbling and all these things. And I was this little tyke and, um, and it was fun. Well, when I was five years old, uh, somebody that my my mom had been dating at the time said, "Well, 
it's time to buy Chris a glove and, and give him a bat. And I guess he'd go into baseball. And she's like, he's going to do what? <laughs> and so that's how I got, I mean, literally that's how I got into baseball is, wow. is like, Hey, everybody else is doing it. Uh, you might as well do it. Right. And so, but on top of, you know, dance and tumbling and baseball, we also did basketball and everything else that they could possibly shove me into to give me a number of different experiences. Wow. And so getting into baseball, it was, it was fun to me, right? I loved baseball. I I naturally gravitated towards baseball, but I enjoyed every activity that I did. It's not like, it's not like at five years old, you know, it was going, oh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Right. When I was seven, I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest (laughs) of my life. (laughs) Right. And so I, I quickly learned to love the game of baseball. Um, but that's, that was the journey of what started, um, you know, into baseball. Sure. And so I loved every part of the team aspect, but I also loved the team aspect of everything else that I did too, in, in, in basketball and even in dance. And, and so I don't know a lot of your, if a lot of your listeners ever came from that kind of background with dance, I was a part of a dance and drill team. And so it was, you know, dance back in the day was a lot different than it is today. It was, okay. it was very, very disciplined. It was very, I don't want to say militant, but when you're in a dance and drill team, right, sure. it is somewhat militant. And so there was a lot that carried over from a leader. Obviously, we're going to talk about leadership today, yeah. right? And there was a lot of carryover from the dance world into the baseball world, into the basketball world. I ran track. I did a number of different things. And all of it, um, there was a lot of great leaders and there was also a lot of bad leaders, sure. right, that I was exposed to throughout the period of time. And so fast forward from five years old to, um, you know, playing in in high school and college and professional baseball. I mean, I played for, for 22 years. I was a catcher wow. my entire life. Anyway, I was in T-ball, right? I had the catcher's, you know, outfit on, I yeah. shouldn't have the whole, the whole nine yards. And it's like, it was pointless. Like, why would a T-ball, you know? <laughs> Why do you need a catcher in T-ball, right? But I got it. I've got this cute little picture of me with the mask on and the full nine. Yeah, it was just, it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. Right. And so, but that was my love. Um, I loved baseball, but I loved catching. Okay. And and how are your knees now? If you love, well, you know, I've got I have four knee surgeries. I have two shoulder surgeries. I've got a thumb surgery, and I've got three concussions. So. I would, uh, a lot of people ask me when I say that, they go, oh my gosh, you're all beat up. I can't, do you regret doing it? And I would literally, I would go back and do it all over again, the same exact way. That's awesome. A hundred times out of a hundred times. That's awesome. And so, yeah, my body's a little beat, beat up. Um, but the skills that it gave me throughout the years, um, you know, obviously in a catching position, the catcher is the, the quarterback, Right. Right. Of the field. Yeah. And even though the pitcher commands the game, well, a pitcher can come out in one inning or two innings, right? And then it's a new guy. And then right. it's a new guy. And so what I grew to love about the position or about catching was is you're the only player that can see the entire field, right? Sure. You're the only player on the field that can see every position. And you're the one calling the shots. Yep. Right. And I didn't like that from I, I I wasn't drawn to that because I like to control things right I was drawn to that because I 
I like helping people. Like I like helping my teammates, putting them in the right position, putting them in positions to succeed, right? Calling pitches that I feel like this pitcher is on for the day. Let's say that their fastball is not working, their curveball is not working. We've got to strategize in my brain. I have to strategize to go, okay, how can I get this hitter out sure. with what my pitcher has to give me today? Got it. Right. And so that's what I loved. I initially got put into uh, the position of catching because they put me in the outfield and I was playing with dandelions and butterflies. <laughs> And they're like, we, we've got we've got to figure out how to put Chris in a position where he can actually be involved. In, we need a know? position where he can focus, folks. Exactly. <laughs> so you know that's that's uh, you know not to make it too long winded, but uh, you know from from five years old to the time I retired in in minor league baseball, baseball is a, a, a passion. It was a love, um, still is a love, and um, you know was was my identity for a very very long time and. So transitioning into the business world, uh, it's been a lot of fun taking a lot of those skills and passing them into the business world. So so where'd you play college ball? Played a small university uh, called Cameron University in Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. And so they were a a small school, no football program, so no one really knows about them, but they were – you know, top top five top five baseball school. Really, um, they're okay. great. I mean, at least when we were there, right? My, yeah. you know, my class was there, and we were uh, we had a really good team. And we'll talk a little bit about that team yeah. too. I mean, a, a wonderful team. Uh, but I I started my college career actually at Mesa Community College here in Mesa, Arizona. Got it. And um, that those those years that were there were formative in creating. Chris as a man, yeah, right, and that was the, that was the building block. We'll talk a lot about that program itself, okay. And um, in contrast to a lot of the minor league teams that I played for and and some of the things, but yeah, Mesa Community College and then Cameron University. So and and did you get drafted? No, so I was uh, so back in the day they had these like uh, draft and follows. Um, they they don't have that anymore. It's like a foreign word now. Okay. Um, but it was more so, hey, we have an intent to sign you out of high school. However, we want to see how you perform through college. Okay. Right. And so that's what the draft and follow kind of deal was. And so I was um I played all four years, never got drafted. I picked I got picked up by a uh at a free agency. Okay. That's how I got picked up. Awesome. So awesome. Yeah. By who? So the, the San Diego Padres. All right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, that was kind of a crazy story. And again, I'm not going to bore too many of your, your listeners, but, uh, I was a catcher my entire life until I hit college okay. and f- figured out that I could run really fast. <laughs> and they, which isn't usual for catchers, which is right? not usual for catchers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, um, 60 meter dash, right. Is the, you know, 60 yard dash is the, um, is the uh, the metric that baseball uses to time speed. Okay. And so uh, I was faster than all of my teammates when I was at Mesa Community College. Okay. And the coach goes, um, you're no longer a catcher, you're an outfielder. <laughs> and I go, that's awesome. Um, I don't have a glove. I have not played the outfield <laughs> since I was picking dandelions at five years old. So this is going to be wonderful. I can't wait. Yeah. Right. And so I transitioned from there. So so going into professional baseball. So it's funny. A lot of these scouts and all these professional um, teams were confused because they go, wait, I thought Chris was a catcher. And I moved to an outfielder. And then uh, going back into professional baseball, I went back into catching. And I almost had to rebrand myself 
as a catcher going okay. into professional baseball. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. A lot of these stories, I mean, there's there's people that might listen to this podcast that have known me for 15 years that might not know all of this stuff. I, so I'm learning. Anyway, I'm pouring new. it out for everyone. Yeah, so <laughs> way to be vulnerable on the manufacturing culture podcast. Um, so what caused you to stop playing baseball? Oh, gosh, that's um, you didn't know I was going to go so deep on that. Did no, you? man, we can go. We can go five levels deep on that, but uh, injuries, opportunities, and performance. Okay. So I'll say those those three. If we're being vulnerable, right? Yeah, we're in a safe space. Yeah. So um, injuries. So I had two. I had my two shoulder surgeries when I was out of baseball, but uh, what my organization didn't know is that I had I played like the last two years of my career with a with a torn rotator cuff and um and so I was never quite known for my arm strength I was really known for my arm accuracy and blocking and my mind right so I was a very I was a very good defensive catcher um and I was a very good defensive catcher that could also hit a ball further than anybody on TV, <laughs> but I struck out a bunch, right? A lot. So you're so, like Joe Boo. I, I, was, I, was Joe, I was the epitome. I was a real life Joe Boo. That's wow. exactly all it. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, I, I literally, there was only a, a handful of guys on TV that could, that could hit a ball further than I could. Um, as long as it was hard and straight. I mean, the faster that ball came in, the further it was going. I didn't care if somebody was throwing 105. Or if they were throwing 85, doesn't matter. The ball was going a long ways as long as it was straight. If it had a little bit of a, a wrinkle <laughs> in it, you know, different story. And I got exposed real quickly. Uh, the last couple of years of my career, I got exposed um, to the curveball. And and that was, you know, I, I laugh because I say that was the end of my career. Yeah. Um, but I kept my, my, uh, my job for the last two years because I was a good defensive catcher. Cool. And so, uh, but injuries played a part. Um, opportunities played a part. So as an undrafted free agent, there's not a lot of investment at an organization places into you. Sure. Right. And so they want ROI that the money ball is a real thing. And, <laughs> and I know that, that, uh, that movie came out a long time ago, but, um, the Oakland athletics really changed the game with analytics, yeah. really changed the game with how they look at drafting and draftability and projectability. So a lot of the old time scouts, they would um, they would look at a player and they would look at the arm strength. They'd look at the, you know, your swing speed. They'd look at all these things. They'd be like, he's projectable, <laughs> right? And a lot of these guys with their notes and their speed guns and, and they're like, that's a projectable ball player, right? And what those guys, those old timers, they say the old timers, these scouts, unbelievable at scouting talent right but as that era kind of switched over and those scouts started to become older and the new regime came in a lot of these newer younger scouts didn't know how to quantify why they wanted to pick a guy right and so i'm i'm making a point right of of money ball enters in and there's a lot more metrics and a lot more data and a lot more things that go behind that. Well, what comes with that is ROI. Sure. Is if we make certain decisions, like a lot of shops make when they're trying to buy 
a piece of equipment. Yep. What's my ROI going to be on this fifth axis machine versus if I just keep what I've got and and cross train employees to try to increase increase spindle time, right? right. And so, um, you know, I didn't have that huge financial investment in me. And so opportunities didn't necessarily present themselves the same way a million dollar draft guy would. Okay. And so um, that was the, the the second part. And then the third part was performance. I started striking out a bunch. Yeah. Um, the curveball exposed me. You know, I would uh I would show up. It's so funny. My my you talked about my batting average yeah. in the uh in the intro is hilarious. My um my batting average with runners in scoring position, unbelievable. Okay. No man on or runner at first base. <laughs> unbelievably horrible. <laughs> and uh and so but uh, you know, it's I, maybe it's a testament to to me wanting to perform at a high level and perform when when it matters, right? But yeah. every at bat matters, yeah. you know, every decision matters, and so uh, that's a long story of why I I am no longer in baseball. And uh, the crossroads is probably the most heartbreaking story. I wouldn't say heartbreaking story, but um, at the end of my career, I would have off season jobs. Mm-hmm. And I worked at my, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Um, she, um, she worked for a, a local print shop, very big print shop here. Was, she was a lead graphic designer there at the print okay. shop. And, and they, the business owner needed a, uh, a guy just to do some handiwork on the side. And I said, okay, I'll come in and I'll do it. And I was a, I was, I've always been a yes, sir, no, sir. Just put my head down and work and do the right thing. And. I like I I never talked to my wife at all when I was at work. Like I would show up to her work, I would get my job done, and I'd say, "Okay, honey, see ya," right? And I'd leave because I didn't want that. Are we having dinner tonight? Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whatever you want me to throw, you know, throw some steak on the grill. Um, but anyway, so that that business owner was um, he was insured by a company okay. and said, "Hey, uh, Chris, the the skills that you have, I really like the way you work. I think it would bode well to." to go into this interest industry, you know, it's a very stable industry. Um, it's, it's quote unquote recession proof. Um, the insurance industry really is. I mean, everyone needs insurance. Right. Right. And so from a commercial standpoint and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. sounds good. Sure. Sure. I'll interview, but I'm still going to go back and play baseball. And I was talking with the Chicago Cubs to become their bullpen catcher. Right. At the time. And, and Jed Hoyer and, and some, you know, some of the older guys that were, um, with the Cubs organization and, uh, Fast forward, I chose insurance. Wow. Body was, again, body was breaking down. Opportunities weren't necessarily there anymore. And it, it was, it was probably time. I had a lot of, a lot of people encourage me to say, gosh, Chris, you've got a lot of really good skill sets in the baseball world. Like we're talking managers of major league organizations that I have, I have spoken with and they go, Chris, you know, I, I, you're better suited going and serving, um, you know, clients maybe in this other, use your brain and use your skills in other ways versus just being a bullpen catcher. And there's nothing wrong with being a bullpen nope. catcher. I'm not talking down on bullpen catchers. There's a lot that they do for an organization in a very good way. Yeah. And so here's the heartbreak portion. Um, I, took, I was wondering, you I said took, heartbreak. I took, I took, I took the insurance route, which is awesome. Uh, four years later, uh, my wife and I are sitting on the couch. She's a huge Cubs fan. Uh, her and I are sitting on the couch and and hooting and hollering and screaming and yelling because the Cubs just won the World Series. And um, <laughs> all right, there it is. And so Cubs are still breaking hearts, even when they win. You, you know, it's uh, you know they break the hundred year spell, mm-hmm. and I'm like, ah, oh, you have that sinking feeling going. 
decisions, right? Gosh, if I would have done that, would I have stayed with the organization? I could have had that World Series ring. I could be on that field, right? Wow. And that's a one thing where you kind of you sulk for about 45 seconds. And you go, no, I'm really happy with the decision I made. Yeah. Right. And so that's the heartbreak. So talk uh, talk to us about your journey into the manufacturing industry. I mean, because you go, you sell insurance. How did you get into skilled trades specifically? I mean, huh. construction, manufacturing, um, those aren't easy industries to just walk in off the street, not knowing much about and build the relationships that I've seen you build over the time that I've known you, which is eight, nine years at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, so how, how did you get into this industry selling insurance? I was, the short answer is I was thrown into it. Okay. That was a short answer. Voluntold. Yeah. Yeah. Voluntold really what it was. And, um, I have, I've, I've got a mechanical background, right? I used right. to, I, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, classic cars and, and, uh, rebuilding classic cars, which, which by the way, it wasn't Shelby. I had my, my dad and I restored a 69 Mach one, um, oh. it was an old beat up, it, it was an old beat up 69 Mach one. And, and, right. um, it was an eBay car. There's a long story, but, uh, do you still have it? I still have it. Are you bringing it to the car show? I should. You should. I should. All right. Um, but it's funny. I, when I when I married my wife, I said, "Hey, you know what? There's just only one condition. Like, if we go bankrupt, we're gonna have to live in this Mustang." Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry, you know. And so, but I came from a mechanical background. And I loved just tearing things apart and putting them back together. I loved Legos, Connects, Erector sets, all that stuff. Yeah, I loved it. And so, I never even thought of the manufacturing industry to be something that that I would fall into sure. and love as much as I do. And so the insurance company that I, I worked for, for, for about a decade, um, they specialized in only about 16 industries. One of those industries was, was manufacturing. Okay. And I inherited a very tiny little book of business, but for maybe five or six of those clients that I inherited were small little machine shops. Okay. And the first time I stepped foot into one of those machine shops, you smell the cutting fluid and you see the spindles turn, you see chips flying, you go, you, you, I just knew it. Yep. And I go, I love every part of this. <laughs> I literally, and, and I can't, I, and my wife looks at me, she's like, you're nuts. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I love every part of this and I want to pour my life and soul into this industry and yeah. I want to insure right it, it, not to talk too much about it but i want to insure these people properly because because the insurance industry as a whole doesn't necessarily at the time know how to insure manufacturers or the specific challenges they write policies and they go hey here's some expensive paper right but really pouring into the why and what makes manufacturers tick and really the industries that they serve which is everything i mean everything on this table is from manufacturing Absolutely. right and so um, it was from that that time forward, I just dedicated all of my energy and effort into the manufacturing world. And it went from seven clients to 85 machine shops very quickly. That's awesome. And so, and I, gosh, I, I love it. Love That's awesome. Of it. So over that time, you've inevitably been in shops that, and this is a real meat and potatoes of the episode today that use my least favorite phrase yeah. of all time when they talk about their employees as being a family 
mm. versus being a team. Have you seen that dynamic? Have you have you come across those companies that have said, "We're just a big family here"? You know, I, I don't. Yes, okay. yes, yes. I have, <laughs> and and you know, and I don't know if it, I don't know if it's just they don't have anything else to describe, right? Because I think it's such a natural thing to say, like we have, we're so close, right? Sure. It, when when you've got when you've got even close friends, you say, "Oh, we're family." Right. But there's a big distinction between your frustration. I'm sure it's a big distinction between a family and a, and a team. Right. And a team unit. Right. And so and teams can be close. Teams, teams can be unbelievably close. You can hang out with each other outside of it. Right, right. Absolutely. But families, it's really hard. And I've said this on multiple episodes. So anybody out there, I apologize for the repeat. It's really hard for a child to hold an aunt and uncle accountable. It's really hard for them to hold grandma and grandpa accountable for their performance yeah. within the family unit, right? Yeah. On a team, any level, if it's built correctly, any person on any level of that team can hold anybody else accountable for their performance and their actions, right? I would agree with you. There, there's a lot to unpack with that too. I mean, there, there really is. I mean, you could, you could have a, you could have four podcasts about that. I mean, really, you could. <laughs> well, maybe it, we'll it, have to create a little series, yeah. uh, a Chris and Jim series on <laughs> we could. leadership and teamwork we and could. all that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so the thing that I think of, the the two things that immediately pop out to me when you when you say that, um, first off, you you don't know from a, we talk about perspective, like you and I have talked about perspective all before, the time, right? You don't know the family dynamic of your employees. Your employees could hate their family. Absolutely. And, and they could have not talked to their sister for 10 years or their dad for 15 or whatever. So the term family could be really negative in their mind, right? And, and when you start spreading that, you say, we're family, we're family. And then you've got a machinist that goes, goes, I hate my family, right? Or I'm going through a divorce. Or I'm going through, exactly. I don't even right? want to, I don't even want to hear this word. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's something to, to be cautious of. Uh, but the other thing too, is like, you also can't pick your family either. Right. And yeah. you, you can't pick your family. You can pick your organization that you work for. You can pick your friend group that you hang around with. Like you can choose to be with certain people, yeah. right? And your family is always going to be your family, which it could be a wonderful thing or it could be a really bad thing. Right. And there's a very big distinction between a family and team. Yeah. Um, so let's so. equate that to, to baseball. Let's, let's go back into your past, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> When you were on teams, right? You said Cameron was a very high placing team every year, right? The Padres always been a very high functioning team dynamic, especially in the minor league systems. You don't go into a lot of minor league clubs, major league clubs and see absolute dysfunction amongst team members. I mean, you may, and I'm sure you've got stories, so <laughs> share them, Um but was it 
a team mentality? Was it a family mentality when you were playing? Um, was it a mixture of both? And and how how do you think that that can translate into lessons learned for manufacturers or or anybody listening today? Yeah, that's a ve- that's a very good question. So I'll, I'll take it <laughs> back to the community college that I played for. And that's really where it all started. That's where all this leadership, all the accountability, all the 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 character building, everything started okay. for me. Actually, not even started, where it all made sense, where it all clicked okay. is there. And um, there's there's people in your listeners' lives, in your life, that played a, a vital part in your development, right? Yep. Um, Tony Sorelli, call him Skip. He deserves. Is every manager or coach in baseball nicknamed Skip? By the way, it's like the name, right? <laughs> it's, Sorry, it's the, yeah. It's like you. it's for your listeners. Man, your listeners might not know. Like it's that's the name, Skip. Yeah. right? you call him Skip, and so are the Skipper, right. right? The Skipper, and so you call him Skip. But um, but Tony Sorelli, he 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 deserves so much more than what he wants to receive because he's he's giving right in not a foo-foo way okay he's he's like a sicilian hard nose gold glove boxer like really really um very disciplined stern hard man yeah but in an unbelievable way knows how to get the most out of every human being he touches that's awesome and he played the biggest role in my life from growing up into being a man um, that anybody has. You know, my my dad did a wonderful job. My grandpa did a wonderful job. Some other coaches did a wonderful job. But really where it clicked was, was that man. And I attribute a lot of my success to him. Got it. And so uh, when you talk about the family dynamic, yeah, we've said family before. We did say family, right? It, in the clubhouse, it's like, oh, we're a family, right? But really what we were is we were warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was almost it's almost more militant style than it was kumbaya family. Got it. Right. And and so the things that we went through, and I'm not saying and I'll transition this into business, right? Sure. But to to give an illustration of of the things that we had to go through, I mean it was it was 4:30 a.m. weights. It was you had to run a, a sub six, you know, six minute mile, right? Every single Tuesday in 120 degree weather on the track. <laughs> if you were 15 minute, if you were not 15 minutes early, you were late. Right. Um, any disciplinary actions, you had to put, you know, this this sled. We called it the sled, right? We had the sled with two 45 pound weights on it with a just a chain, almost looked barbaric. Right, that you'd have to walk around the field, right, or run around the track, right, of the uh, of the baseball field, and um, you know those were those were things from a punitive standpoint, obviously, but but when it came to like those are the things you go, okay, we're in war, but the from a discipline standpoint, from an accountability standpoint, Skip was always constant. Yeah. He would you knew exactly what to expect from him you okay. knew what he what he expected of you too and so you could always count on him um and you could count on your teammates so we we laugh because you say we were going through war yeah. because of the physical exertion that we were expending right on a daily basis but it it was also the discipline that was instilled the small ball per se right that a lot of people talk about of 
you're doing drills all day, every day. You're doing specific drills for an hour, for two hours. You're going, why are we doing this over and over and over and over and over again? And as a young kid, you're like, this, like, we get it. Like, Skip, we got it. Like, we've done this for five hours for the last nine months. Right. Like, w- we we get it. But really when it comes down to in in the team aspect is he was building a team unit that we could all rely on each other to perform and to perform every day, but also to perform when times get tough or when it's difficult or when the game's on the line. And that I think is probably the most evident um, characteristic of the team that I played with or that organization that I played for is nobody was going to beat us with the small things. Got it. At all. And so in, in the leadership style, he did give us, he gave us a little bit of freedom. He was not a dictator. He was not, he did not make us do things that didn't make sense. Yeah. If that make, you know, and I've played for plenty of organizations where, or even worked for plenty of places where your boss is asking you to do something. You go, wait a second, is this a task (laughs) or is this a tool? Right. Right. And so, um, you know, hopefully it's not a task yeah. right and so with that organization going back to your comment of is it a family unit is it a team unit it was solely a team unit you could rely on every single human being that you were staring into their eyes and you know that they've gone through the same pain or they've gone through the same training they've gone through the same thing that you went through sure and so you know that they're they're skilled up to a certain level of, I can rely on this person. Right. And I think with business too, where I've seen with a lot of machine shops is um, a lot of things that that have lacked, I guess, is cross-training that mm. I've seen personally in sure. shops and where one guy runs a machine and he does it so damn well. Yeah. Um, but they're so scared to take him off that machine or him or her, right? off of that machine and cross-train them to another machine or to another machine. And then you extrapolate that over years of employment issues, right? And I think, and again, like I said, we can talk about this for hours, but if you've got people in your shop that can rely on each other, if you've got people in the shop that, that know that there's a certain expectation from leadership from a performance standpoint, but also from an ethics and a character standpoint too, to say, I can rely on my fellow machinists to, to do their job. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's maybe where it ties into it. Yeah. I, and one of my favorite sports moments, a uh, little shift from the baseball theme, but is uh, F1 racing. Oh yeah. Uh, McLaren just eclipsed uh, and set a world record this last weekend, fastest pit stop in history of what F1, 1.8 seconds. Because oh it was 1.9 before, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the fastest gracious. two seconds in sports, right? Um, but if you watch that video and, and listeners, I'll link in the show notes that F1 clip of the McLaren pit stop and we'll put it out the week of uh, on social it is immaculate. It everybody knows exactly what their job is and they execute flawlessly. And perfection, whether it's business, sports, baseball, or F1, 
if you don't know what your job is, if that's not defined, then it's very hard to execute flawlessly, Mm -hmm. right? To me, that's where the difference between that family and team dynamic comes into play. Is that kind of what you're getting at with what you were saying earlier? Yeah. And yes, it is. And so, but that from an expectation standpoint, it's, it's so many people can blur the line though of family. So you say, well, I'm expected to clean up my room. I'm expected to take out the trash. I'm expected to do those things. So you can blur the line of that, right? Sure. But what you're talking about with the F1 pit stop, I mean, that's, that is the fastest two seconds in sports. It's the most incredible thing to watch. (laughs) And, you know, tying it into, into my life in baseball, everyone has a position, right? Everyone has a position on the field and your position has so many different things that you have to do correctly to get somebody out, right? Line drive to right center field. Who's the cutoff man? Who's throwing to what? Who's calling out the plays? Who's doing it? And if if one person is broken in that chain and they don't know what they're doing and they don't know what's expected of them, then it's done. Sure. Right? And so to your point of the, the F1 thing, I think in organizations, yeah, I mean, you have to have a clear defined understanding of what your people, they need to understand what their expectations are. And what their role is, right? And what their role is. Now, do you think, and, and I just thought of this while, while we were talking, Chris, do you think that maybe the lack of definition of roles in our industries due to the fact that we are struggling so mightily to fill all the roles within our industry, right? Um, I, 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 I just a, a wild ass guess, right? Um, but it, do you think that could be contributing? We just don't have enough people in these shops to define roles. I know plenty of shops that have 15, 20, 25 employees and the owner has nine different hats and has over half the employees reporting directly to him versus management levels uh, because the studies show that you lose effectiveness as a leader when you have more than seven direct reports, right? So do you think that that could be a function where if we filled these roles, we're then more able to better define them? So then that team and excellence mentality takes over within those facilities. That's a that's a very good observation and a very good thought. Now, I think a lot of it comes down to what your podcast is, right? It says culture. Sure. Right. And so I I I immediately when you say that, I think about culture. And yes, the the dynamic and the hierarchy within an organization matters too. Yeah. And you and I have, you know, the same clientele, right? <laughs> and so where it's, you know, I could have a a manufacturer that has 450 employees, yeah. but they have different problems than a uh, one that has a 15 employee shop. Right. Right. And most owners are wearing 15 different hats. Right. And, you know, we can get into conversation about delegation and trust and all of that too. But um, I do think about culture when I think about what you just said. And there is, it's no secret, right? You can't find anybody. Right. Right. And, and no machine shop or no manufacturer that I'm looking for says I need a warm body. <laughs> right. And I think that's like a curse. It, it might as well. It will. Yeah. It used to be they would just hire anybody who could fog a mirror. Yeah. And then true. that's why they had such high turnover rates yeah. for so long pre COVID. Yeah. Then COVID hit. The workforce started thinking, oh, I know my value. 
I need to make sure that I'm working. And that's across all generations. That's not just the Gen Z's millennials who are looking at the values of an organization and do I believe in those values as well, because that's all that brings that culture piece together is when those values align between the organization and the employee. It does. And so to to go back to your to your statement of, you know, the hierarchy, having people from within, not having enough employees, that's I think that's always going to be a challenge, at least in the foreseeable future, until we can get apprenticeship programs or something, get the culture to shift within the household to say manufacturing is not a big, bad word. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's going to be a challenge. But, uh, you know, the other thing that I think of within an organization on that topic is trying to find leaders from within and not necessarily having a leadership position. Because I think you and I both know that there's leadership by hierarchy and then there's leadership by example. Absolutely. And so, you know, a, a lot of the organizations that I've I've worked for or played for, um, you have your manager and you have to listen. You have to respect authority. You have to do what they say. Right. Yeah. And but there's been many a times where I have seen leaders from within that have shown that they they might not say anything yeah but people notice them yeah absolutely and and i think what's anybody what, can be a leader a- anybody can be a leader right there are certain characteristics of a leader but literally anybody can be a leader and so i think tr- as a as a business owner or as an upper level management trying to find that person not exploiting them not saying you're going to be the leader sure but maybe putting them in in different positions um, that are more noticeable. Okay. Um, you know, and 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 I, and I it, it might mean something completely different to different organizations, yeah. right? But making sure your other employees see not it's not just your high performers either, right? I've seen plenty of high performers that are horrible human beings. Absolutely. That I don't want anybody to look up to. Yep. I've had plenty of teammates that were unbelievably talented that would never classify as a leader ever, right? And I've and I've been in organizations and worked for companies the same exact way. Yep. And so they might be uh, they're just crazy good at selling, but I would never have them train anybody else the right. way that they sell. Yeah. And so I think with with shop culture, you know, trying to find that trying to find that employee that you know, you have to have a want and a will to lead. But even if you're just leading by example, you're showing up on time, you're putting your hours in, the machine's running, you're not looking at your phone all day, right? You're you're wearing your PPE. You're just that staple employee. And it doesn't it, it could be a 23-year-old yeah, too. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be a, a, a 50-year-old running a machine who's been in the shop for 25 years. Yep. It could be a 23-year-old that just came in. And who's just killing it, yeah. right? And I and I think trying to, you know, again within that too is putting your people in positions to succeed. Absolutely, is another portion of that as well. And again, you, it doesn't have to be a particular leader, but as a leader of your organization, what's your job is to raise everyone up, right? Yep. It's not to add dollars to the bottom line, even though that's a function right of creating a good culture and finding leaders within your organization but i think organizing your operations in a way that helps your employees put them in a position to win 
yep. to succeed, I think is vital from anybody that's listening to this podcast that's a leader in their organization. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and so often we see uh, great individual contributors, and this isn't just specific to manufacturing, right? We see it in sales. I used to see it in distribution. I'm sure you see it in insurance. You've got an individual contributor that's just absolutely killing it, whether it's uh, on a machine, as an operator, a machinist, uh, pro program management, project management, sales, whatever the case may be. And the person in front of them on the org chart dies or retires or quits and leaves for whatever reason. And that person, that great individual contributor then moves into a leadership position, right? And to your point, not everybody can do that. Not everybody's meant to be that leader at that level, right? So I'm curious, going back to baseball, tying it together with manufacturing and culture, um, how does baseball identify future leaders, right? Um, and, and how can we take some lessons in manufacturing and developing for lack of a better term, a farm system of leaders within <laughs> manufacturing, right? Um, how do we do that? Because uh, I, I teach leadership development courses here in, in Phoenix. Uh, I help organizations develop and identify leaders. But we're at a point where I don't know if it's enough right now, right? And, and so how, how can more people hear this message from you and, and start to do that internally. How, how did they do it in baseball? Yeah. Baseball is, it, it's, it's, it, <laughs> it depends by organization. Some organizations did a wonderful job. Some organizations did a horrible job, <laughs> which, which I think to what you said, you go, well, he's just next in line. Right. Is the worst thing that you can <laughs> do to make a decision to say, well, he's done his time and you know, I, I it's it's his time to shine. Yeah. Number one, he might not even want that. Right. He or she, I sorry, he or she might not even want that. But um, but secondly, I I literally I think about hockey. Actually, this is it, it, like you talking about this makes me think about Wayne Gretzky. Okay. And let's Wayne Gretzky. Let's go to a whole different. Let's bring the third sport in. No, on gosh, today's conversation. Well, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of examples in baseball, but I think the most prominent example. To me, Wayne Gretzky's the one of the arguably he is the greatest, greatest yeah. the greatest, the right? greatest of all time. Yeah, in his field, right in hockey, yeah. he became the manager of the Coyotes, and people despised him. Right, they didn't want to work for him. They didn't want to play for him. He wasn't motivating. He was the best player, the greatest of all time on the ice, and it was his time. I guess it's his time to put him as a manager of the Coyotes and it didn't work out very well. Right. right? I think that's the the prime example of that. Jordan. Jordan. When he went to the Wizards. Right. Elway as a GM wasn't successful. Right. right? It needs to be identified in my opinion. Right. All this is opinion. Right. Yeah. It, it's all objective. But I think identifying the person that that people gravitate to doesn't have to be the best person. Like the best leaders that I've ever been led by weren't necessarily the greatest in their field. Yeah. They weren't the greatest baseball players. They weren't the greatest salespeople. They weren't, but 
people would run through a brick wall for them. Right. And and I think like for me, that's the ultimate compliment when somebody says, I will run through a brick wall for you. Yeah. And, you know, and that that kind of, again, it all trickles down. I keep on pointing at this, but it, it all kind of trickles down to the culture that Thank you Thank you. That's great branding. Sorry. Me, by the way. No, I mean, keep it, pointing. <laughs> but it 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 all comes down, in my opinion, it all comes down to the culture that you've created in the organization. Now, are you gonna have casualties making a decision to to promote a machinist that doesn't have the tenure as somebody else, a hundred percent, you're going to have casualties. You're yeah. going to have some pissed off people. You might lose somebody. But again, going back to what's the function of a leader, what is a leader there for? They're not there because they're good at their craft. They're good at raising other people up. Yeah. And so I think identifying that person or people within the organization. And I think that should be the first metric you look at versus looking at skill level. Like, obviously you have to be skilled. um, You have to have an understanding of the people you're trying to manage, right? You can't, you can't go from saying, Hey, I'm in shipping and receiving. (laughs) Now I'm managing the shop floor, right? You you can't necessarily do that because a lot of those people on the shop floor are going to say, they've never done my job. I'm not going to listen to them. I don't trust them. I don't believe that they're in that right position. Yeah. But if you find that person that that has a skill, right, that has the skill to want to pour into others too, mm-hmm. um, that people gravitate to, and and we might be talking about an anomaly here. I mean, we might there might not be that person in somebody's shop. Yeah. But there's going to be somebody that stands out more than somebody else. Absolutely. And that's been apparent in every shop that I've walked into. Yeah. There's that one. Because I ask, I ask business owners all the time, who's the one person you can't live without? Yeah. Right? And well, every shop has that group of people that they pay 5 to 10% more just to make sure that they don't leave. They don't leave. Right. And we keep them happy. So, but yeah, but finding that within the management level, right. middle level management with creating the culture below from top down, right? Um, I think it's multifaceted. Well, a a middle manager's job is to take those values of the organization and connect them to the employee, right? And and that's when you get that word, right? And Mm -hmm. I, I talk about it almost every episode. That is what makes a culture is when organizations values and individual values align. That's culture. That middle manager's job is to say, okay, John, what is what do you value in life? Oh, you value XYZ? Here's our company values. Here's how that connects. Go do your job that much harder, that much better, right? Yeah. Go give me that much more effort to get that done, right? That's a middle manager's job. It also die with the middle manager too. Tell us more. I mean, it, 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 that's, that's why these positions are, are so vital because I've been at the bottom of the totem pole. We all have, right? And, and when you have a disconnect between you at the bottom of the totem pole and the owners of a company, and you have something that's broken in the middle, you have no direction. You don't know what's up, what's down. You just show up and you clock in and you clock out. Yep. Right. But the the word that I think of is interdependence, right? And we all rely on each other 
to get our jobs done. Yeah. And so, and, and, and it's so cliche, but the pillar, right? The pillar of <laughs> interdependence. Um, but the, the visual of a pillar is probably the, the best illustration that I can think of because it holds up very heavy things, right? Sure. And if one piece is broken, which would be middle management, if you have one thing that's broken, you have one little thing that's cracked in the middle of that pillar, everything comes crumbling down. Yeah. And, and I think, again, we talk about culture a lot, but what we should also talk about trust. We should talk about accountability. We should talk about a lot of those different things, but organizations can succeed tremendously if everyone has the common goal and everyone believes in that common goal. And it doesn't matter if it's shop employee, the guy mopping the floor or the owner or everybody in between, as long as somebody understands what you're trying to accomplish and why you're trying to accomplish it, people can jump on board. Absolutely. Um, and so that's why I say it can live and die by the middle of your man or middle of your, your organization. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, let's talk about turnover a little bit. <laughs> it's a big deal in manufacturing. Uh, numbers came out 20 uh, numbers haven't come out for 23, but the numbers for 22, about a 44% turnover rate industry-wide. It's a lot of people, right? Um, about 8% of those people, according to the research that I've done, the the numbers I have, 8% have left completely, right? The industry. So leaves us with fewer people in, in this industry. Uh, the reason we started this podcast was to highlight the benefit and the good parts of our industry, try and get more people in, try and help companies retain the people they have, recruit new people. What are some ways, unique ways that you could draw from your baseball days to help recruit and retain better in the manufacturing industry? That's a good question. So I know from the baseball, I'll talk about baseball and corporate, mm-hmm. baseball and corporate. So in the baseball industry, um, attracting and retaining, I think about college and college recruitment yep. is huge, right? And the, some of these college recruiters make a boatload of money um, because they attract the best talent. Sure. And these baseball players will go. From high these, school from to high school yeah. to these to these schools based on a promise. Okay. And what does typically that promise look like? The promise is either opportunity, which is playtime, yep. right? It's 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 your promise for opportunity, your promise for advancement. Yep. Let's say you're a freshman or you're you're senior out of high school, you're gonna be a freshman in college, and you're a catcher, but there's a sophomore catcher and he's got two more years to play. Okay. You're relying on the promise from the organization to say, Chris, I know that there's a sophomore here. Um, however, or a junior, sorry, not a, a sophomore, yeah. a junior here. And I know he's got two more, two more years to play, but you're our guy. And I want to, I want to develop you. I want to train you. So when he's out, you're in. Got it. And that's what gets a lot of um, young athletes to go to these organizations. Now they can come in and also play immediately. Sure. Right. And that's, that's the promise of opportunity. And I think 
taking that topic and going to the workforce, I think people, there's certain people that like their job, right? And they like just doing one thing, clocking in, clocking out, totally fine. They don't want to advance into management, They, they yep. right? But going back to what you said, you're like, well, why do you work here? Why do you want to work here? And identify if somebody does want to move up, yep. right? But I think communicating the opportunities at the organization and communicating what you're trying to accomplish, right? A lot of these these college sports teams, they say, let's say we're in a rebuilding phase. Mm-hmm. You're a key piece to our rebuilding phase. We're going to go to the World's College World Series in three years or four years. You're going to play a vital role in that. Got it. And they tell 15 people, 15 kids that, and that's their rebuilding. Yep. Right? Same thing in professional sports. They do the same thing with trades and acquisitions sure. and everything like that too. But I think clearly communicating what the organization's vision is for the future and how that individual fits into the piece. Absolutely. Is important. Um, I think about retention. That obviously what we just talked or what I just said, I'd be that that plays into the retention piece. As long as sure. you, as long as you follow through on what you say you're going to do, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's a completely different conversation. Um, goes into the leadership of can somebody trust you, rely on you? Do they want to run through a brick wall for you, right? Yeah. Um, but when it comes to, in in my opinion, from a retention standpoint, I think of an organization that I worked for for a number of years. The most outstanding employee retention of any organization I've ever heard of in my entire life. I mean, there's 40, 50-year employees of this organization. The average tenure of the organization was like 26 years. Wow. It was crazy. Uh, And it was impressive is the one word I would use for it. And now thinking about it right now, when you ask the question, thinking about why, why? Uh, I think it all boils down to what we just talked about from a, the the acquisition standpoint of of employees yeah. following through with what they they say they're going to do, um, but also offering support to all of their their employees. Right, all of their employees knew that they had support and they trusted the people. They were in a safe space, right? And that's sure. kind of a, 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 a thrown around topic now, but or a hot topic. But they were in a safe space to be able to perform. Sure. And, you know, there's, there's a ton of quotes out there, but, you know, I think about, what is it, George Patton, he said, uh, um, don't tell people how to do things, tell them what to do, and then be amazed at their results. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that organization, even though there was a certain level, level of management and training and investment that they had into their employees, yeah. they also let their employees do their jobs. And they weren't breathing a lot down. of empowerment, a ton of empowerment. Yeah, but it was it was constant training, constant development, constant empowerment. We're here for you, and the communi- and the communication of that though that was the most impressive part of it. The most impressive part was it wasn't an end of the year hoorah <laughs> Christmas party. Hey, let me remind you again why we're doing what we're doing. And I'm going to do that once a year. Right. It was constant. Okay. It was constant communication of the message, of the vision. I mean, they had this thing. It's called VIP, vision, integrity, and purpose, right? 
And so that was a part of that organization and, and it was branded, it was communicated and everyone bought in. I love it. And, um, and that leader of that organization, very few people I would say this to, but I would run through a brick wall for that guy. Really? I mean, he was, he was, he was that good at communicating and he was that good at, at, at making sure everyone had the tools that they needed to succeed. Okay. And you could go run wild, yeah. right? In a good way. Yeah. So I love it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the challenges, uh, generational challenges, right? Uh, I, before we wrap up here, um, I'm Gen X. I think you're a millennial, maybe a Gen Z. You're much younger I'm than I'm I am. Clo 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 I'm right on the border. Right, right, on, the, right on the border. Right on the border. Yeah, right, right. on the border. Um, so interesting dynamic that I've started researching quite a bit is uh, the older generation, the baby boomer generation has had to, uh, they experienced the loss of pensions at work. Right. Um, and to me, pensions are what retained a lot of people through a lot of the golden years of manufacturing pre this, you know, industry 4.0. And so baby boomers are now left without pensions. So they're now having to work longer. A lot of them are in leadership roles, right? So Gen X is essentially a generation without leadership, right? So if, if you start looking at who's going to be the next generation of leaders, it's not necessarily going to be us, right? It's a, that leadership transition is is going to move move on to the millennial generation, and that's fine. Yeah. There are a lot of super brilliant, really uh, great, inspiring leaders in that generation. So I don't want to take anything away from that. But what what can we do to motivate different generations, knowing some of those dynamics, right? And and how. When you played minor league ball, you inevitably had some people who were there because they got injured in the majors and, and they got brought down. Some people who got brought down because they're nearing the twilight of their career and they're just refused to give it up or, or, you know, hang it up. You've got some people who are there because they're super young and they need to be developed, right? So you've worked in an area that had multi-generational dynamics. How do we bring some of those lessons into the manufacturing sector? I think of one word and that's mentorship. Okay. Tell us more. And so I love that word. So tell us. Yeah, more. I, I, that's, that's immediately what comes to mind. And yeah, I have been, I, I have been the young guy. I have been the old guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I have been the old guy. And it's so funny when you say that at like 25 or 26 years old, you're like, I'm the old guy, right? you know? And so I, there's a, there's a purpose for every single person on that baseball team, yeah. right? In that organization. You're right. That guy that doesn't want to hang it up. As long as he's willing to pour into others, totally fine. I played with some of, some big leaguers, right? That were on my team that got brought down and all yeah. that stuff. I played with some some big leaguers that had brand recognition really that were unbelievable. Yeah. But they were so salty about why they were there. Mm. Um and they still kind of loved the game, but they didn't know anything else. Yeah. 
And I think of those guys as the people you were just talking about of the upper level management. They might be, they have to work longer, right? They might be in their 60s. They might be 62, 63, 65. Maybe they're a little salty. Yeah. Right? And and maybe they're just doing their time to go, I just want to get to retirement. And and I put those in the same in same box from a baseball and professional standpoint. Uh and and maybe you can help those people, maybe you can't. Sure. Maybe you can try to extract as much out of them, maybe you can't. And so, but it's all gonna depend on them, is really what it is. Cause yeah. you can't force the old dogs to to really do something that they don't want to do. And I and and I don't actually I take that. I don't want to speak in absolutes. There might be some people that you can encourage, right? And sure. push. But I think with the multi-generational thing, then I think if everyone plays well together, I think there's a certain level of mentorship. But those mentors that are older, more experienced, pouring into and raising up, right? The younger generation and and not bossing them around either. Because yeah. there's a lot that you can learn from the younger generation too. Absolutely. And even though you've been doing something for a long time, doesn't mean it's right. And so there might be different ways to look at different problems. There's always different ways to look at different problems. I I do a mentorship for where I got my MBA. I, mm-hmm. I got my MBA through Ohio University in Athens. Mm-hmm. Go Bobcats. Um, and uh, they came to me a couple of years ago. They wanted to set up a mentorship program to help outgoing cohorts, right? The, their final year of their MBA program um, <coughs> transition and, and get through some of the things that they need to get through. I am on my third mentee right now. Uh, the first and the, this one I've learned more from than I think that I'm giving to them. Right. Amazing. Uh, it's just, it's been such a magical experience. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it for anybody in any stage of their career. Right. Uh, because people need mentors at, at a stage. And, and if you're a leader who wants feedback on how they're doing, I guarantee you, you can find somebody younger within your organization that is more than willing to give you a unbiased <laughs> look. Yeah, it's, tr- how, I mean, it's true. It, it, it's true. I, I recommend my clients do 360 degree surveys, right? Yeah. Uh, have your employees rate their manager when it comes to performance management time. Yeah. That's a an amazing way for a leader to understand how they're doing, right? So sorry to interrupt. Oh Continue. no, you're Continue. fine. Yeah, in the baseball world, I wish I mean, God, I wish we had that. So, trust me, there, there's plenty of managers that I'm like, can we get rid of him like now, please? <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's yeah. I I there is so much, so much to learn from all generations. Yeah, and being open. Can't it's I've got I'm a broken record, but it comes down to the culture. It and hopefully there's business owners, hopefully there's executives, hopefully there's upper level management that's listening to this podcast, because there's so much that you can learn from creating a culture that somebody feels safe to at least say these things. Sure. Right. Absolutely. To 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 say, you know what? I know Bob and Jill, they've been working here for 25 years, they're doing this way, but I I have an idea. 
And, but having that young person be comfortable enough to be able to speak yeah. and say, I, you know, thank you so much for your mentorship. I, have you thought about looking at it this way? Yeah. And that's your future leader. Absolutely. And if you stifle that energy and you don't allow people to, to bring forth ideas, I, I, you're killing your organization. Absolutely. Because you can't just go out and buy that. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a, I think there are natural leaders, but I think there, there's way more leaders that are developed than there are natural. Got it. I agree with that. So Chris, we're, we're in the bottom of the ninth inning. <laughs> um, what haven't I asked you that you want to talk about? prepare for that question you know that's why i do this gosh it's a, it's a good question no i i think obviously you know wrapping this thing up i'm so the thing that i'm passionate about is i'm, I'm passionate about people and and i love seeing other people that are passionate as well and i've walked into hundreds of shops yeah hundreds of different types of manufacturing operations as well. It doesn't have to just be metal, metal, wood, plastic, rubber, paper, everything in between, yeah. you know, and you can feel instantly whether somebody cares about their people or that you I, I, I overheard that it cares about their heart count versus mm -hmm. their head count. Right. Yeah. And I think that was Simon Sinek, right. He yeah. said that. And I, and and you can feel that instantly. Yeah. And something that I would maybe encourage your listeners is, is to maybe take that objective look and go, I want to look at my people in a different way. And, and, you know, not to, not to hype up, you know, what, what you're doing. I think what you're doing is amazing because I think it's needed. Thank you. Not just in manufacturing either. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've focused a lot on the insurance side. I'm building a culture of safety. Yeah. And it's the same principles. Absolutely. And I think if you if you start looking at the human aspect of organizations, you look at the human aspect of every day. It doesn't even have to be in your organization. It could be you walking down the street and caring for somebody else, holding a door open, saying hi, smiling, right? We're all listen, we're all going through tough stuff. Yeah. Like we we all have to, this life is not easy yeah. right there's no playbook by this <laughs> right and and so i know a lot of your listeners are just they're you know maybe they're business owners maybe they're not they're just figuring it out right, right. and i would implore everybody to just just take the human perspective and really start pouring into people it will pay you way more than what your bottom line shows. And guess what? Your bottom line is going to be positively affected because of it. Yeah. But you're going to be, you're going to be so filled because of it. Yeah. And, and passion is infectious. Caring for others is infectious. If you as a leader in your organization start caring for others, others will start caring for others. I love it. That's what I want to leave with. I love it. Mic drop on that one, buddy. <laughs> Jeez. Well, folks, what an incredible episode this has been. 
We've covered all the bases. I'm going to just keep using cheesy baseball puns. Uh, We've covered all the bases today from the importance of defining your company as a team rather than family to the invaluable lessons the world of baseball has to offer the manufacturing industry. I'd like to extend a huge thank you to Chris Caves for not only sharing his fascinating journey, but for also giving us a playbook on how to build championship-worthy teams in the world of manufacturing. If you're as pumped as I am about fostering a winning culture in your organization, don't forget to visit us at manufacturingculturepodcast.com for even more actionable insights, riveting reviews, and a treasure trove of resources that'll help you hit out of the park, hit it out of the park time and time again. Easy for me to say. A special thanks to our sponsor, Spironi, for making this episode possible and all of our episodes. They're the cleanup hitter in our lineup, always reliable and incredibly effective. More cheesy baseball puns. When you're aiming for the big leagues in manufacturing, you want Spironi in your corner. Uh, Before I say goodbye, I've got one small favor to ask. If today's episode struck a chord, resonated, or even made you think differently about your own company culture, please do me a solid, share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and anyone who could benefit from these insights. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show. Your feedback helps us define our game, redefine our game, and deliver the kinds of conversations that make a real impact because it drives us up the charts. I mean, it's not for my ego when you write and review the show. It's really not. Uh, It's because then more people find out about the show. So keep those rally caps on and let's continue to aim for the fences as we transform the culture of manufacturing one episode at a time. Until next time, stay inspired and keep swinging for the stars.